everyone. Welcome to this week's live episode of the Master Instructor Roundtable with myself, Wendy Batts, and friend and colleague, Marty Miller. Marty, how are you? I'm doing great, Wendy. How's everything over there? Uh, everything is great. A little humid, a little rainy, but all is well in the world of, in Atlanta, if you will. Well, wasn't it like 12 just the other day? So like you can't get it either way, right? Yeah, you know, it's either cold or humid. Make up your mind. But uh <laughs> So instead of talking about the weather, today we have a very, very special guest. Um, obviously, Marty and I hold this individual near and dear to our heart because he is a fellow master instructor, as well as an owner of The Hive, which is a gym um, outside of Fort Lauderdale. And many of you guys, especially if you've been a part of NAS and Performance, have seen Coach Andy Hanley joining us and delivering a bunch of exceptional content, a lot of great videos. And he's basically the face of a lot of that page. And so we are going to have him on joining us today, talking a lot about boxing and working with this particular type of athlete. So let's bring on Andy. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Really well, really well. Pleased to be on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, as always. <laughs> of course. Anytime. <laughs> well, good. Well, we are... no, oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead Wendy. No, no, go ahead. I insist. No, I was just going to say our, you know, our topic is training the sweet science. And so I learned this from my producer because I didn't know that they, that's what they talked, like, that's what they called boxing. Mm -hmm. So I am loving the title and um, Andy, you know, we, we bringing, we're bringing you on because I do follow you on Instagram. Obviously I know that you post a lot on the NAS and performance side, talking specifically about this type of athlete. So can you kind of give us a little bit of background of like what you're because you're training males and female boxers. So can you kind of start off with what you're doing? Correct. So obviously I have my facility here in, uh, in Davie, Florida, and I'm blessed that I'm actually conveniently located quite relatively close to a world class boxing gym called Sweatbox. Uh, now, essentially, Coach Javier there, he's amassed a very uh, a team of fighters that are, you know, it's small, it's compact it's very personal and he's very selective with who he lets in his program which for me is beneficial why because it means the quality of boxer and fighter that i actually get access to is is generally world class um, all of these guys were high level amateurs obviously there's going to be a pretty big jump when we talk about transferring from the amateur boxing sport to the professional ranks in terms of the conditioning required right they'll go from three rounds up to four to twelve uh, amateur boxing, generally it's scored on points, whereas professional boxing is more quality of punches. So boxers generally are going to have to, you know, take a lot more punishment in the ring. So there's a lot of different uh, areas that have to be developed when you're talking about developing amateur boxers, preparing them for the pros. Uh, Coach Javier, from a skill development and boxing IQ standpoint, is one of the, the best in the world. And I'm in the blessed position to get access to these guys three to four days a week. So when they're cycling in and out of their boxing camps, I get them for an eight-week cycle where we get to just play prime and prepare them to hopefully go and put their best foot forward or best glove forward in the ring on fight night. So, yeah, that's the, the long and the short of it. As you said, it's male and female. Um, I love working with both of them equally because what you'll find is uh, my female fighters, very detail-oriented, want to understand the why behind what we're doing. Their buy-in is more in terms of from an engagement perspective, they really want to know what drives the process. A lot of the guys on the other side, they're very trusting, too trusting at times. They want to come in, they want to put the head down and work. So it really is a nice blend for me as a coach because I get to answer specific questions while just winding some of them up and uh, letting them go. 
No, that's great, Andy. And, and, you know, both Wendy and I know that you've trained countless different types of athletes, not just boxers. So for the audience here, I want to make sure that that's clear that you've trained elite level athletes throughout the type of different sports spectrum. So how do you find training a boxer different than some of the other elite athletes that you've trained? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, irrespective of the athlete, generally you're, you want to train the athlete first, right? So for me, it's athlete first and boxer. Naturally enough, they are boxers. They've got certain skills that they require to succeed in their sport. And that's where I have a pretty close working relationship with their skill coach, Javier. But in terms of developing the athlete first, like for me, athletic ability to train skill, right? So when you look at boxers, they've got to be able to move, read, adjust, react to opponent-led directional changes, all while maintaining good rhythm, good balance, good posture. Um, and, and that's what it's about. So... Yes, I'm working with boxers. Yes, it's paramount that I'm actually, you know, developing physical qualities is going to best suit them when they're in the ring. But where does it differ from working with everyday athletes? For me, it's in the, the planning. We get a very definitive uh, timeline in terms of training, right? So from a programming perspective, I'm blessed in that I know there's a specific fight night and we really get to reverse engineer all the components of the program. Now, Working with boxers really is no different from working with any other athlete in terms of respecting the certain demands of the sport. Like what are they required to do physically to allow them to perform and excel their sport well, right? To these guys, they require periodization, right? And I'm sure we'll get into that. Fatigue management, management of workloads, because for me, these guys, fighting is a skill. It's very skill dependent. And everything I've got to do has got to put these guys in the best position possible to maintain a certain level of intensity and focus and sharpness during the training camp. So for these guys to do well on fight night, their training can't really be compromised. So I've got to work very hard in terms of managing the intensity and the volume in conjunction with their coach to ensure that these guys are showing up in training, not sore and they can actually move well. So we, we, we kind of purposely bring these guys through certain phases throughout the eight week process to ensure just that. As these guys get closer to competition or fight night and they're ramping up in terms of the volume of their sparring and their intensity of boxing, I've got to make sure that, that my total workload and volume is kind of mirroring that inversely to ensure that everything is just, uh, you know, on the up week over week and these guys are arriving peaked and primed. And Andy, I find it interesting because obviously you and I have multiple conversations and, you know, one of the, the topics that we talked about on the phone that I found interesting is when you talked about the goals of a successful camp. So yeah. can you kind of elaborate and tell, tell our listeners kind of what you mean by that? Yeah, so the goals of a successful camp, for me, it's always going to be governed by my guiding principles with any program, right? So I may, I wrote them down here just to make sure I wouldn't forget them. First one, <laughs> holistic uh, assimilation of training elements. So what does that mean? I'm very integrative in how I train. Uh, and there's a reason for that. And within that, each component has to have a positive outcome. So what you'll find is oftentimes a lot of coaches, I feel like when you're looking at the industry, there's a lot of busy work in the programs. And sometimes instead of actually moving the needle for the athletes or the fighters in, in this question, you can create a lot of noise and it's more so an accumulation of fatigue instead of really dialed in, dialed in uh, concentrated work. Outside of that, prioritization of health. All right, we've got to manage workloads. I tend to remove a lot of high risk methods with these guys and we can kind of take a deep dive into that as well. Um, so I want to make sure that over eight weeks, I get to see these guys basically 24 times in the weight room. So it's got to be very calculated. The programming has got to be very considered. Uh, and when we get into the goals of my camp, all of these factors um, come into play. Simplicity in programming. 
for my athletes, in order for, for me to get by with these guys, I've got to make sure that it's very clear for them to understand what we're trying to accomplish in each session and how this is going to move them closer to their goal. And then finally, I wrote down here, long-term athletic development. So yes, in any given camp, we're looking for, we're trying to build short-term readiness, right? So we want these guys ready and prepared for the next fight because obviously we want the W. But now that I'm a part of their extended team and the, a lot of these are young fighters on the up, while I'm still looking at short-term readiness and results, I'm still kind of prioritizing long-term development in terms of physical qualities that I want to start laying the foundation for now that we can build on moving forward. So when we talk about my goals in camp, first of all, the first goal is prepare them for the fight, right? Are these guys conditioned to go the distance? And basically, can they produce more force at quicker rates? Once these guys show up healthy, they're well-conditioned and they've got a good snap in their glove, and they can produce force well from foot to fist or floor to fist. I know you want to say it. I've done my job. So with outside of that, then it's can we build strength and power while maintaining them in a certain weight category? So when you look at boxing, it's very mass specific. All right. So I'm trying to work on building these guys momentum and their ability to use their body and produce force without necessarily adding mass. And we know force is mass times acceleration. So if I can't increase lean mass, I've got to make sure that the mass they have they can move that at speed, all right? And that's where the acceleration uh, component and, you know, our phase five and six training in terms of the power development really come into play for these guys. So when we look at mass and momentum, momentum is mass and velocity. Can we get that arm moving at speed? And then when, when it moves at speed and we can get these guys contracting on impact, uh, they're delivering harder, right, in terms of their punch power. Um, so that's a big goal for me in camp is, movement efficiency, global efficiency, not only getting these guys conditioned, not only keeping them healthy, but again, developing base level rotational skills uh, that will transcend into their uh, boxing performance. Uh, that's excellent information. So for those of you that just joined in today on the Master Instructor Roundtable, Marty Miller here with fellow co-host Wendy Batts and very special guest Andy Hanley talking about the sweet science of training boxers. So, Andy, I know that you've got a lot of data that you look at. You know, you don't just go by feel. So can you tell uh, our audience here, what type of metrics do you use? What kind of data points do you like as it pertains to training boxers? And that could be phase by phase specific or, you know, if you had maybe that holy grail of one, two or three things that you got to look at. Well, the first thing, if you look at the research, it tells you there's a really strong correlation between uh, jumping performance and punching power. All right, especially when you get to the pro level of boxing, uh, there's a there's a huge um, there's a huge uh, gap in terms of how efficient these guys these guys are at transferring ground based power and ground reaction force from the floor through to the fist. Right, so from an amateur level, the sequencing is not that well tuned. When we get to the highest level, we know that developing strength and power in the lower body will absolutely allow these guys to generate more power and then transmit more force and energy into their opponent, which is the obvious goal. Outside of that, then, it's with boxing, when you look at the best boxers, it's about maneuverability, right? Sometimes you see guys in there and they, they, can, be, they can be quite robust and rigid, whereas Javier and his style of boxer, they've got to move free. So we're looking at good fluidity of motion. We're looking at good range of motion uh, through the spine. Uh, we're looking at footwork. Uh, and that's, I feel like that's often a very under-addressed area with these guys. So when we look at good boxers, it's their ability to attack space and escape space that allows them to counteract or pre-position themselves well to land. So I'm a huge advocate of like stepping outside of boxing skill development in my world. Let's just work on footwork. 
How are they managing their mass and space? What's their dynamic stability like when they're moving? Sometimes we do it just standard change of direction work, and other times we'll bring in reactive elements that actually they've got to respond and then produce a designated movement outcome that we're looking for. So for me, the big things is, can we get these guys moving well through the trunk and torso? Sometimes they can get quite rigid because when you look at the boxing training as a whole, there's generally not a whole lot of you know, posterior chain development. These guys tend to spend a lot of time in flex positions. So for me, it's can I make sure that they've got a, you know, the ability to move well through the spine? Can they move and coordinate their feet well in space outside of the boxing skill? And then finally, it's just that lower body strength and power. Because when you tie those in, you've got someone that can move well, make adjustments, and then obviously just deliver a huge amount of force. I love it. So so when you're talking about that, you know, again, we talk about training, especially in all three planes of motion. We talk about, you know, you kind of get what you train for. You're talking a lot about, obviously, you know, foot patterning and developing and being able to move quickly super important, obviously, in boxing. But on the training side, you know, when you're putting these programs together, how often are you doing basic just strength training with these guys or girls? Uh, That's a great question. So we do strength training every day. All right. Now, the theme will change and it depends on your kind of definition of strength. Now, strength is important for boxers, as we discussed, because, again, research will tell you the stronger you are, your ability to move through the gears increases and with that is your rate of force development so when we look at initiating a punch strength can absolutely uh, impact that so now when you look at the different types of strength boxers need when we're talking about professional boxers that might have to be able to produce and sustain rapid powerful efforts over 12 rounds we're looking at strength endurance right so strength endurance for me would be a huge part of the program so if we were to bring this back to the opt model phase one phase two where these guys have to produce strength in a balanced co- or coordinated manner, uh, that's that, that's the priority of within my program. Yes, we do. We work up towards top end strength. Um, I like to dot that in from week three onwards. But for the for the for the most part, we're looking at strength endurance. We're looking at power endurance. We're looking at getting these guys in kind of split stance, unilateral type work where we're building strength and isolation in the legs because it's very rarely in the boxing ring these guys are ever going to be in a perfectly symmetrical stance where really the, the true transfer of your traditional squats and deadlifts can carry over so when we talk about transfer of training and functional strength training uh, that's the sort of uh, that's the sort of angle that uh, my thought process you know takes me in terms of can we get them single leg can we get them split split stance then can we work from endurance high repetition into top end strength, uh, just again, to lay the foundation and allow these guys to move well, move well for uh, time, and then obviously produce power uh, when required. Um, so yeah, I mean, we do a lot of strength training. And then on the flip side is, as we said earlier, I, I alluded to earlier, boxing guys tend to take a pretty specific stance, right? Rounded through the spine, a lot of internal rotation. So sometimes a lot of our strength training is just to kind of counteract that. All right, so we kind of take global strategy, strategies where I want to train these guys in terms of their posterior chain. I want to get them strong. I want to do a lot of scapular retractive work, a lot of uh, different rowing patterns and variations, purely just to ensure that from a, a muscle balance perspective, uh, we're keeping some sort of synergy there from front to backside. Great information, Andy. So you talked about the strength endurance, which is a direct correlation to the model. Can you talk about how you might train power endurance? And do you maybe let that be the conditioning they do on the bags where they're throwing punches at volume, because obviously when you're looking for power, 
in a gym, sometimes those exercises are higher risk and to do them for long periods of time, we got to be careful there. So, you know, what's your strategy working with the coach and maybe is that where they get their volume in a bag work or how do you, maybe if you need to tweak that power endurance, what type of stuff would you do in, in your facility? A hundred percent. So that's a conversation that again, I have with the coach and it's important to have these to ensure that uh, we're not kind of doubling down on the same physical qualities that these guys need. So by nature of training, as we said, the best fighters win boxing matches for their ability to fight. So they've got to throw, you know, punches and bunches, so to speak. So when you look at these guys training, a lot of that power endurance work specific to their sport takes place in the boxing ring. So in terms of the work I do, the power endurance stuff is usually, I would say, 60 to 70% going to be lower body in nature in terms of plyometrics and jump training because we know the ability to develop eccentric capacity will help guys put the brakes on, load and release. Um, in terms of any upper body power training, usually it's ballistic with medicine balls where we can still do pretty high, high reps and high volume because there's no deceleration component. When you release that medicine ball, it's more concentrically driven. We're working more on explosive power for time or reps, and it generally tends not to be too fatiguing or create too much soreness. But to your point, and it's a very good point, a lot of their actual power endurance training takes place within their skill training with the coach. And that's something that we're always kind of talking about. And just ensuring that we're, we're kind of monitoring and managing uh, the training loads from that perspective. Right. So, so Andy, kind of to piggyback off of what you're saying, and, and I, I'm sorry, this wasn't anything that was written down, but just based on, on you talking about your programming and your camps, what do you guys do to, to have them go the distance? Because obviously you're working on power. Hopefully they, they do a knockout and they're done. However, if it goes multiple rounds, you know, we've seen this in UFC, you know, we've got to make sure that they can last the distance. So what do you do on that side of, of their programming? Really good question. And it, it's funny enough, I'll say it, in terms of their training, when you look at these guys and they, they're doing their technical work and then they've got their actual sparring work. As we progress through the camps, these guys might start week two or three with some light sparring over three to four rounds. As they get deeper into camp, it might jump to eight rounds. Let's say they're fighting a 10-round fight. Two weeks out, now they might get to 12 rounds of sparring where they've got three individual guys, and these guys are changing round over round. So my fighter might be in there. He's going 12 rounds, but every round he's meeting a new opponent that's coming in fresh. So again, the, 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 the best way to condition these guys, specific to the needs of boxing, again, is through the boxing itself. Um, <laughs> Outside of that, we've had a lot of success lately. On Thursdays, we like to go to the track. So that's not to say that I don't take control over some areas of the conditioning. So in terms of the repeat sprint work where we can get these guys on track, uh, the feedback from the athletes is they're feeling like their ability to recover within the rounds has severely increased. And you've got to look at that, right? So when you talk about boxing, yes, it's three-minute rounds. It can last 36 minutes if it's a 12-round fight. But when you look at the bioenergetics involved, they've actually got quite a bit of time in there to rest and compose themselves between the really high intense burst, or, you know, efforts. So what I found is repeat sprint work with these guys, specifically on a track where we can deload the wrist, take the pressure off the shoulders, and actually allow these guys to produce high levels of ground reaction force, not only develops really good physical characteristics that improves their ability just to feel springy in the, in the ring, but we can get that really good metabolic response without any unnecessary wear and tear on, you know, the money makers. Um, so in terms of conditioning, a lot of it happens in the ring. Outside of that, we, we'll actually take these guys to the track. And as we progress through the weeks, we kind of work from our kind of uh, slower steady state 
right the way through to our repeat sprint ability, which has really paid dividends for these guys. Love that. And I'll ask a follow-up question off script on this one. So, you know, if you watch any boxing movie, they're doing their road work and they're putting in their miles. And I think sometimes this is just what everybody else used to do. And we had the same thing in baseball. You had to do a 20 minute jog after you were a starting pitcher, but looking at the research, it's like, okay, you got to have a base, but is it really going to carry over? So have you seen a transition from maybe the older school boxing where every you always had to go do your five miles, even if they were almost just like running at four miles an hour, just the road work. Are you seeing finally a transition to, yes, we need a base, but let's be very specific with the bioenergetics as you talked about. Absolutely. And that's why it's such a blessing to work with these guys because they're willing to evolve and learn and actually take guidance. So it's part of the culture, right? Tradition, you look at the Rocky movies, he's out lifting logs, slapping pigs, running on the road. So road running is a big part of the boxing culture. Uh, and you can't really remove that. So when I say Thursdays, we go to the track. I was remiss to say that on Saturdays, we actually go to the hills. Why? Because these guys, it's in them. They want to clock mileage. So mm-hmm. getting these guys off the road, I would much rather take these guys off the road where they're just pounding on the pavement. We actually go to the hills where there's a little variability in terms of the impact forces that they're getting. They're on grass to gravel. There's inclines, declines. So the variability of those impacts actually helps build a more resilient structure. So yes, there's been a great trend from these guys moving away from the traditional road running. Because as you said, Marty, yes, it's great to build an aerobic base and we need that, but there's a cost of doing business, right? Mm -hmm. So studies will actually show you the more time you spend road running. Yes, while you've got a greater engine, there can actually be a progressive or gradual shift from fast twitch to slow twitch fibers. And in boxing, that can be very costly. You know, if you've got a guy out there that's conditioned well and he's not altering his structural you know, physiology negatively towards the sport, he has an advantage out the gate. So, yes, I think in my experience, anyway, especially with the sweat box gym and what Javier is doing and promoting there, he's he's very forward thinking in terms of how he's preparing his boxes from the skill development side as well as the physical side. And he's, he kind of gives me free reign in terms of uh, how we're structuring things. So, yeah. Road running, it's still very much prevalent in, in the in the community with our particular group of boxers. We do it one day a week because it's an itch that these guys love to scratch, but we do it on the hills where we're bringing a bit of variability. It's not that repetitive wear and tear. And as you know, over time, that can be counterproductive in terms of just tissue quality as well as a muscle fiber type. So, yeah, love it's a really it. good question. Yeah, yeah I've struggled with that in the past for many reasons. <laughs> I think we all have. I can imagine. <laughs> And today on the Master Instructor Roundtable with myself, Wendy Batts, and co-host Marty Miller, we have our very special guest and friend, Andy Hanley, joining us. And Andy, you know, I, we're talking about uh, training the sweet science, too. Um, we are live as well. So if you guys have specific questions for Coach Hanley over here, please be sure to put them in the comments so we can get them answered. Uh, now is your time to uh, to lay it on them. And let's, let's, uh, let's see what we can get from you guys. But, but I have a question on a, a kind of a a different side, you know, we're talking about the intensity, we're talking about the cardiovascular side, we're talking about the different types of training, especially within NASM and the OPT model. But what are, what do you guys um, do for the recovery side? I mean, without, of course, we need to know about sleep. We also know about nutrition, all of that's going to play a very important role. But what do, what do you guys have planned for these individuals either right when they come to you from the start and then again, right before they go out onto the ring for their, their match. Yeah. Phenomenal question. Again, I mean, 
you've seen it before and it's almost cliche work hard recover harder because we know that's where the magic sauce lies between guys positively adapting to the training stress right and that's the idea when we talk about training that we move through this this idea of adaptation into as we get closer to the fight optimization we want to make sure that all the seeds we've sown on the early weeks are culminating and cultivating in a in a heightened athlete on the tail end and a key to that is the recovery so we monitor and we prioritize these guys' sleep. They've got uh, private chefs that prepare their meals. As I said, Coach Javier in his boxing gym, he's put in infrared sauna, he's put in ice plunge, cold bath. So we're, we're taking all the measures we can to make sure these guys are fueling well, they're sleeping well. And then it's just feedback, right? When these guys come in, if for whatever reason, they're not feeling great, they've recovered, they're under-recovered in terms of you know a little bit of soreness, which is never the goal of our training we'll make the adjustments. So from a sparring perspective, we'll reduce the volume there. In my world here, it's very easy for me to tinker with the programming and just back off uh, some of the training stimulus that I plan. So we're quite proactive in terms of adapting what we have planned to do. Because you know, with any good program, it's not a case of fitting athletes into your program, it's building your program around your athletes. And on any given day, their state of readiness or preparedness to tolerate that training stress, training stress rather, might be compromised. So we'll make adjustments on the fly. Over the course of the week, they've got their cold plunge protocols. Again, on Saturdays when we do our low-intensity steady state on the hills, that can be very beneficial from just a, a general recovery protocol standpoint because we really don't be too aggressive with that. And then, as we said, we just monitor their nutrition and their sleep. So it's quite a holistic approach. Um, outside of that, then they've got their individual massage therapist and masseuse, so they're getting their soft tissue work once, possibly twice a week, close to camp. Awesome. And Andy, for the you know group here with NESM purists that know the model well, have maybe not yet talked, uh, you know, really dealt with athletes, kind of a two-part question, and you can just kind of skim over it, you know, at a light level, because um, we could talk about this for hours, is talking about the boxer and how that converts to other rotational athletes, because we both know it does, and maybe which phases are kind of your keys during one week. How do you you know, do you get people to do multiple phases in a week or is it kind of a week by week, you know, uh, periodization program? Amazing. Uh, yeah. So when we talk about, obviously we're talking about boxers now, I've got an extensive background with baseball players, uh, golfers, tennis players. When you look at the rotational sequence, it's very similar for a lot of athletes in terms of their ability to generate ground reaction force, their ability to transfer that force through the body well, through the legs, through the trunk, out through the torso. So when we start talking about the kinematic sequencing, there's a lot of carryover between different athletes within different sports. So when we talk about actually programming for that from an exercise selection standpoint, which we can get into in a second, uh, you'll find general patterns. And when, when I talk about, we're talking about boxers, and, and one caveat to this is when we talk about sports-specific training, I feel like there's a time to be very sports-specific but then there's a time to be sports relevant. And when we talk about rotational athletic development, sports relevance for me takes precedence in terms of we can take general patterns. And when we refine those well and we get guys moving well in sequence, I know now they've got that rotational capacity to a point that their skill coach can now take them and actually finely tune them to more of a nuanced approach in terms of you know the requirements of the skill of the sport. Now, the question in terms of loading parameters and managing the acute variables within the phases and loads you can go either way marty and really it depends on my boxers so if i've got 
novice guys and they're, they're relatively new to the weight room, they're younger, generally I will go week by week or two week blocks where we'll progressively move them through the phases. Because we know the early phases where we're not moving that fast, we're not moving heavy loads, it's a great opportunity for me to actually see how guys move fundamentally, see how they can manage their body weight in space, and it gives me the opportunity to coach because it's very tempo driven. So while they're moving, I can make certain adjustments and that's going to provide a lot of context for these guys as they progress through the training program throughout fight camp. Some of my more advanced guys we might be a little bit more undulated. Mm-hmm. We're depending on when they're sparring is if they're sparring on a Tuesday and Friday and I want these guys primarily Friday is the big day and I want them fresh on a Friday and I'm seeing these guys on a Thursday, it's going to be a lower training load. All right, and that's where we might go more phase one, phase two, where I can get an appropriate challenge to their to, to their body where I know I'm going to get positive adaptation, but these guys are at a level that's not going to create huge soreness. Whereas if I train these guys later on in the phases for max strength or power, neurologically they might not be as well recovered for the following day, and that could negatively affect their sparring performance. And as we said, my goal is to support coaches' efforts in building these guys and not detract from it. So it's always fighter first. So depending on what he wants, how much time we have left in camp, the level of the fighter and when they're sparring is will determine what approach I take. So it's not really an umbrella approach. We move through the, we move through the phases. Uh, some guys I do when I've got the ability, and that's the magic of the model, right? We can take it very linearly and we can systematically overload the body, which we know, you know is probably best practice. Um, but it's not always the case. So sometimes we have to undulate between the fa- between the phases, uh, depending on uh, the timeline during the week and just my exposure to them. Excellent. Thanks for that, Andy. So I huh. have a, a two-part question. Again, totally off script. So you can kill us later. <laughs> there, <Andy. laughs> and again, if you guys have questions, please be sure to put them in the comments because, you know, um, I think Marty and I are kind of like, oh, this is a great one. But when you get an athlete in, and we, we talk about this all the time, this is the first thing we cover through NASM is the importance of assessments and, and, and looking at any kind of compensations that we may see based on, you know, inappropriate movement patterns. So again, with boxers, we would assume, which is terrible because every individual is different. They're going to have the forward head, rounded shoulders. We know that, you know, they may have maybe even... Um, a rounded back. However, with the athletes that you've seen, especially when we're talking specifically boxers, what are the common compensations you do see? Is there anything that would shock us? And then what are the, what are the assessments that you do perform with these guys before you start them within the camp? Yeah, good question. So again, if you're not assessing, you're guessing, right? So when we take the time at the start to measure both the movement competency, so the functional and structural status of the athletes, it allows us to make um, information-based decisions, all right? And with this information, it can better guide and dictate where we go with our programming. So it's important that we're kind of selecting meaningful tests that, again, give us useful information with regards to their current physical capacities, what potential imbalances, asymmetries, or limitations might be holding them back from optimal performance. So it's, again, it's understanding the demands of the sport, understanding what information you can use to actually guide programming. And then from there, we're looking for that, right? So yeah, when we talk about boxers, you can be sure they're presenting with a few uh, common imbalances or asymmetries. And with these guys, and oftentimes, anytime you're dealing with athletes that are predominantly a one-side sport, so when you look at boxers, they spend a lot of time in a particular stance. One foot is more weight-bearing. Uh, one side is gonna be more rotated and flexed. So 
it's a common reality for a lot of one-sided sports that you're going to be seeing these, you know, asymmetries um, or imbalances, so to speak. And this kind of basically can be presented as like an interim difference. So when I've got these guys in camp, do I work, do I go out of my way to correct this? That's the big question. Globally, yes. So we know for the most part, if I was to kind of throw an umbrella over them all, they're all going to present with the same stuff. A lot of these guys tend to carry themselves with that forward head posture. Uh, a lot of these guys tend to be a little bit kind of rounded through their spine. A lot of these guys are quite tight in their hips, weak in their hamstrings. Uh, some of the low back, some of the upper kind of back muscles tend to be a little inhibited. So their over their range overhead when you're doing the overhead squat testament is, is usually not very pretty. So yes, as part of their warmups, I will build my warmups and build general correctives into my warmups. So these guys are getting exposure to those every day. And then for like really drastic asymmetries, honestly, with my guys, it's something I monitor because I kind of accepted at this point that a lot of it is a byproduct of the sport. Um, so while I do work to address everything in more of an extensive fashion in camp, again, with limited exposure to these guys, I don't have a whole lot of time to really get to the nitty gritty of working to fix these set imbalances or symmetries because these guys have got to be prepared to fight in eight weeks and I've got 24 visits. So when these guys are outside of camp, so if they're fighting three times a year and they've got a four to six week window between camps, that's when we take more of a deep dive into the, into the specifics of working towards restoring optimal balance and really trying to dial in, you know, uh, refined posture, so to speak. So Andy, I, I hate, there's a comment that actually came in and, and apparently they're not wanting to use StreamYard, they're texting me instead. Um, oh. Based on what you just said, if there is an asymmetry, do you focus on the other side to try to get it to catch up? Oh, really good question. So you're saying if, if I'm doing a... So if you notice that they're more dominant on one side, I think the question is like, do you try to catch up? Like I'm left-handed, so I may have, you know, punched more left, but my right side may be falling behind. If you're looking at for asymmetries, okay, do you try okay. to get me leveled out? Uh, I'll work in opposition on that side. Cause you look at the world's top athletes. You look at Nadal, for example, and you just look at his left to right side, complete imbalance in terms of range of motion, in terms of muscle mass, you look at a lot of these kind of top elite, elite pitchers in terms of the range they have available to them. So again, for skill-based athletes where their sport requires certain positions, it's not something I really want to, to mess with. Now, that's not to say that, let's say if someone has a glaring strength discrepancy from left to right side, will I add extra sets? Probably not. Will I change tempos in unilateral positions? Yes. May I add an extra two sets or two reps per set? A hundred percent. But again, honestly, Currently, it's not something that I would, I would really go out of my way to address, um, especially for my boxers, where I know these guys are always going to be boxing and fighting from this particular stance with one foot forward. Um, so do I work in opposition? Yes. Do I really go out of my way to try and balance left or right sides in camp? No. Outside of camp where I've got no real training focus and no deadline? Yes, of course. We always want to try and bring these guys back to midline and restore some level of symmetry. But again, when I'm operating with a purpose of increased power and condition for fight night, my goals, my training goals and responsibilities by these athletes are more outcome oriented in the ring versus balance and symmetrical orientated outside of the ring. So when I'm in fight camp, no outside of fight camp, absolutely yes. I'm always working to restore balance. But again, when you're on time, it can be a your priority shifts. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I think you nailed that, Andy, because on so many different podcasts for different reasons, you know, coming from the athletic training stand- side and Wendy working with elite athletes on her side, we've talked. There's a fine difference between what you're going to do in generalized fitness, where we kind of say we don't accept any injuries. As an athlete, you're training for a sport outcome. We're going to do our best, but there are inherent risks with being an athlete. And sometimes those are the collision type of injuries, uh, your sport concussions, et cetera. But also sometimes you are going to train in imbalance because that's what you have to do. So I think you really thread the needle there well on, hey, in camp, we have to hyper-focus on this. Out of camp, this is how we kind of take it. So that way for anybody watching that's NASM focused and they see these asymmetries, yeah, you're going to attack those. But Andy made a very clear and relevant point that in that small window of sports performance, what his main job is. So Andy, I know Wendy and I could talk to you for this on hours selfishly. You know, my background, I could dig into this with you. But we're at that time, you know, we're going to bring you back. And I highly encourage all of you to give Andy a like on Instagram, Andy underscore athletics. You're going to see him on the Facebook, uh, sorry, the performance channel. Check out. He's going to put some great content out. But what's your takeaway, Andy, just to be anything uh, working with rotational athletes or boxing in general for the audience today? Yeah. So, I mean, when I started working with the boxers, naturally, you want to understand the unique demands of the sport. So when I started taking a deep dive, it was fascinating to me to realize when you look at the best punchers and you look at the punches that land heavy and you hear about this all the time, right? Some guys are just heavy handed. Well, it's actually, it's a three part series. The guys that land heavy and land best are the guys that have got really good acceleration with that initial, that, that initial thrust, right? So the peak contraction is high. What these guys do better than others then is when they're in motion, they actually relax. And then right on impact, there's a second contraction. They call it the second pulse. And that's where they land heavier. And the guys that do this best, they actually call it effective mass. So it's these guys that are really good at generating speed, transferring momentum through the fist, and then right on point of impact, stabilizing isometrically to allow that kind of whipping pattern. And historically, I always would have thought you just want to grind through it. You really want to just generate massive power. But it's the guys that are the heavy-handed guys are the guys that not only move well with good rhythm and timing, but they're, they've got a rapid muscle action. They can relax in motion. And then right at that key moment, they're landing heavy. So it speaks a lot to when we're working with athletes, understanding the nuances of how they produce power, how they've got to move, and what their sport requires physically. So that just understanding that little nature of punching mechanics and impulse momentum relationships has changed the way I view training power, uh, at least for boxers. So it's, yes, it's great to understand that the body adapts to the physical stresses, but when you're working with athletes, it's always fun to take a deep dive into the little nuances of the sports skills and then learning more about that because it will completely kind of reframe how you go about uh, prescribing your programming. And that's really been a, a fun experience for me and I'm always looking to learn. So anyone out there that currently trains boxers, if you've got any good information or anything that you think might better me and my guys, uh, please do send it along. I'm willing to learn. And then, Andy, I, I know that uh, obviously Marty just said it best. And, and Marty, I think you might have one more comment. But um, for those, those of you guys that, that don't know about NASM Performance, you want to go on to the NASM Performance channel. Andy gives a lot of these different um, exercises that he does. He talks a lot about why he does what he does with his everyday clients as well as his professional athletes of all different uh, sports. But I wanted just you to talk really quick, Andy, as well, like, 
Marty mentioned how they can find you on Instagram, but if you quickly want to tell people about your TGIF thing that you're doing every other week too, um, let everyone know what's going on with you. Yeah. Thank you. Shameless plug. So every <laughs> bilateral, every second Friday on the NASM performance page, we have TGIF training grounds in Florida. So essentially our objective with this Instagram live is we're here in my facility. We turn that, we turn on the camera and basically we're talking about different topics from speed training to core training to medicine ball work. We might pick a particular tool and we'll talk about uh, the, how it can be best utilized in programming with different clients. And the idea guys is we want you to have almost like a fly on the wall experience where the camera's moving with me, there's sessions in practice. Sometimes I'm bringing on guests. Sometimes I'm directly going to be working with athletes and you guys can just sit back there with a pen and paper and hopefully, you know, take away a few nuggets and a few aha moments. So I know there's, when you're online, especially in the social media place, there's so much good information out there, but sometimes where we fall short as coaches is truly understanding how we can apply that in our, in our day-to-day -day practice. And that's the objective with TGIF training grounds in Florida is we want you to get some real time, real world visual and learning that you can apply the very next day with yourself and your clients. Um, so as I said, it's every second Friday, 1030 on the NASM performance page. So thank you, Wendy, for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, 1030 Eastern, right? 1030 Eastern. Eastern, Eastern. Yes. Great stuff, Andy. And, you know, my last comment is when you were talking about the athleticism, all I could think of was late 80s, early 90s, Mike Tyson using his legs in his trunk. Nobody did it better. I don't think anybody's done it better since. A hundred percent. And it's funny. So even now, when you look at a lot of the research, they always refer back to Mike Tyson in terms of how he produced power. It was always from like that half to quarter squat. He would literally jump out. All of that force would transfer through the fist. And we all know how aggressive he was. But yeah, he was a... Uh, he was a dangerous man in the ring, not one yes. to be messed with. That's yes, sure. indeed. So, like I said, we could go on for hours. So, first and foremost, Andy, we can't thank you enough. We were so excited when you agreed to do this. We know we'll have you back throughout the year. And I highly recommend everybody checking Andy out and definitely TGIF. So, Wendy, great idea today to bring Andy in. I loved it. So, if you could give all of our amazing people here that watch today your contact information, please. Yes. If you guys have questions for me specifically, you can always find me on Instagram at wendy.bats13 or you can email me at wendy.bats at nasm.org. And my information is right here. So Instagram is dr.martymiller72 and email marty.miller at nasm.org. So Wendy, once again, thank you. Great questions. Great topic for all of you that joined us today live. We greatly appreciate that. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week on the Master Instructor Roundtable.